Uh, I've got a neighbor who loves to find amusing anecdotes on the internet and send them to me. You got anybody like that in your life? So one of the more recent stories he sent me is about a lady who comes home from church one day. Okay, She's just been in church and she comes into her house and detects an intruder in the house. So very quietly she calls 911. And then as she waits for the police, she sees the burglar walking out her back door with her TV under her arm. So she can't hold it in anymore. She jumps out, startles him, and she yells, Acts 238. Well, she'd just been in church again, and her pastor had been preaching on Acts 238, which says, Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Okay, so that's the first thing that comes to her. To her amazement, he puts down the TV and he lifts up his hands. Okay, and he's standing there like that when the police arrive. So they're taking him into custody and he's telling them the story of how the lady had startled him and what she had screamed. And one of the officers says with amazement, now let let me get this straight. You, You surrendered to this lady just because she screamed a Bible verse at you? And the burglar looked startled, and he said, that, that was a Bible verse? I thought she said she had an axe and two thirty-eights. <laughs> You'll tell it tomorrow at work. You know you will. Okay. So welcome to the second week of a four-part campaign that we're calling Aha Moments, the joy of understanding the Bible. The joy of understanding the Bible. Now, there are three parts to this campaign. I explained it last week when we launched. Number one, we're challenging you to read the Bible every day. We've got a Bible reading schedule for you. You can pick it up at the adult ministries counter. You could go online to get it. more information back there. Secondly, we want you to get into a community group. We have over 300 community groups for adults, men's groups, women's groups, couples groups, and so on. And in that group, you're going to be studying my, my brief four-chapter book, Context, Rules for interpreting the Bible. Because if you interpret the Bible accurately, you're going to get more out of it for your life. And then thirdly, we're challenging you to come every one of the four weeks of this series. Because we're going to take one of the passages you read during the week, and we're going to apply the rules that you're learning in the book context to that particular text. So today, we're going to look at the book of Jonah. The whole book of Jonah, just four chapters long, so start finding Jonah. That's one of the passages you read during the week. A quick word of encouragement to those of you who are reading the Bible for the first time or you just got in a community group and you feel overwhelmed. Okay, the homework, the study guide at the end of chapter one was a bit overwhelming. I apologize for that, and I wrote it, all right? So, yeah, you know, you, you had a lot to do, and if your eyes are glazing over because of, you know, reading the Bible for the first time and whatever, hang in there. If your group doesn't feel warm and welcoming to you yet, hang in there. If they don't get warm and welcoming, tell me, and I'll fix them, Okay. So we we just want you to fully engage. Now, last week, if you were going through my book, Context, you learned about the importance of the historical setting of any Bible passage you read. If you'll learn the who, what, why, where, and who, what, where, when, why, the, the five W's, okay? If you'll learn them for any passage, you'll understand the passage better and be able to apply it to your life. Today, we're going to look at literary setting. What do I mean by literary setting? Well, the Bible is actually a collection of 66 books, and it represents a, a wide variety of literature, different kinds of literature. Now, in my book, Context, I describe six kinds of Bible literature that you're going to come across as you read God's Word. 
Okay, you're going to come across laws, and you're going to mostly find laws in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, books two through five of the Old Testament. What are the most famous laws you're going to read in the Bible? The Ten Commandments. You've heard of those, right? Okay, you're going to come across other commandments as well. You're going to come across narratives, just a fancy word for stories. You're going to read stories in the Bible. You're going to come across poetry, some beautiful poetry. You're, you're going to come across Proverbs, pithy little sayings with a moral attached to them. You're going to come across prophecy. You're, you're going to come across epistles, which is a, another word for letters. In the New Testament, you're going to come, come across letters. Now, why is it helpful to know what kind of literature, the literary setting of any passage you read? Well, it turns out that there are different rules for interpreting different kinds of literature. Now, this is really not difficult. Hang in there with me. Let let me use an analogy to drive this point home. Okay, my analogy is flowers. Uh, My wife has several flower gardens in her backyard. And if you ask me the question, what kind of flowers is she growing, I would say, "Uh, pretty ones? (laughs) Say, I don't know. Like a flower is a flower is a flower. To me, why, why do you need to know this stuff? I mean, she's told me the names dozens of times, and I always forget them as quickly as she tells me. So what, what's the difference? Well, it turns out different kinds of flowers re- require different kinds of rules for growing. Those of you who are gardeners, you know this. You know there are some flowers that you've you got to plant in the sun. There are sun-loving. There are some you've got to keep in the shade. They're shade-loving. There are some flowers that require lots of water. There are others that can go for a week or two without water. There, there are some flowers that you could bunch together. There are other flowers you've got to give them plenty of room. Okay, they've got to spread out. So different kinds of flowers, different rules for growing. Different kinds of Bible literature, different rules for interpreting. Now, is this making sense to you? Okay, nod if it's making sense. All four campuses. Okay, we're all nodding. This is making sense. Now let's go to Jonah, and let me ask you the question, Which kind of Bible literature do you think Jonah is? And before you answer, I'll give you a hint. Okay, Jonah is one of a a dozen minor prophets in the Old Testament. All right, one of 12 minor prophets. There are four major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel, and a dozen minor prophets. Now, the difference between the two groups is not that the major prophets are big shots and the minor prophets are no accounts. Yeah, it's just the size of their books. The major prophets wrote longer books. So Jonah wrote one of the shorter books. Jonah the prophet wrote one of the shorter books. So what kind of literature do you think is in Jonah the prophet? Prophecy. Prophecy. You're wrong. I intentionally misled you. Okay? Just wanted to see if you were following there. That's what you would think. And that's what you find in most of the minor prophets. You find prophecy. But in Jonah, Jonah is made up, if you read it this past week, Jonah is made up, three-quarters of Jonah is narrative. It's a big story. And the last quarter of Jonah is not prophecy either. It's poetry. So three-quarters narrative, one-quarter poetry. There's one little verse in Jonah, five words long in the original Hebrew, that's prophecy. We're going to get to that a little bit later. Now, here's why it's so important. When it comes to knowing the genre, the kind of literature, in this case, narrative, you could then apply the rules that I outline in my book, Context, to that particular kind of literature. So two rules, 
two rules for understanding narrative. Here's rule number one. When you're reading narrative, when you're reading story, summarize the theme or the major lesson of the story. So when you're done, you, you push back and you say, okay, what was the major lesson that God's trying to teach through this story? Let me tell you why that's so important. And by the way, these two rules, they're, they're commonsensical. You could probably figure them out on your own. But, but the reason this is so important is because when most people misinterpret the Bible, it's because they've taken a minor detail from a story, they've taken it out of context and blown it out of proportion. That's why they misinterpret the Bible. Okay, what we need to do is to step back and, and ask ourselves, what's the major theme of the entire story? Now, we make this error all the time in conversations with other people, especially when our conversations become arguments. Okay, we will take some tiny detail, something we didn't like that they said, and we'll blow it out of proportion, and we'll miss the whole point. And we don't like it when somebody does that to us, Right? You, you want to say, wait a second, you're focusing on one little deal. You're missing the entire intent of what I'm saying. You, you ever say that to somebody? Okay, don't do that with Bible narrative. It's okay to learn as much as you want about the details of a story, but don't miss the forest for the trees. Now step back and ask the question, what's the theme? What's the major lesson behind the story? Now, I want to give you, right up front here, I want to give you the major theme of the Jonah story. Okay, here it is. It's actually the title of today's sermon. Love the world God loves. That's the major theme of Jonah. Love the world God loves, which ironically is a message that Jonah didn't apply to his own life. He didn't love the world God loves. We're going to learn more about that in a moment. I'm also going to take you through chapter by chapter, four chapters, and give you a main theme for each of those chapters. Those are going to be the four main points of the sermon if I ever make it through the introduction. All right? And we're still on the introduction, okay? Don't shake your watch at me. All right, here's the second rule for interpreting narrative. Rule number two, decide what's descriptive and what's prescriptive in the story. Let me illustrate the difference between descriptive and prescriptive elements. Okay, here's a recap of the first chapter of Jonah. God tells Jonah to do something, sends him on a mission. Jonah doesn't want to do what God's asked him to do, so he decides to run from God, jumps on a ship, heads the opposite direction. God sends a violent storm, Jonah gets thrown overboard, and he's swallowed by a giant fish. Those are the details of the story. Those are the descriptive elements. Now, the danger is sometimes when reading the Bible, people will take a descriptive element and they'll make a prescription out of it for their lives. Say, oh, this is the application. This is what I ought to do. Now, what if you take one of those descriptive elements I just told you from Jonah 1 and you make it prescriptive for your life? What you're going to come away with is something like this. Stay off of ships. You know, or, or don't go swimming in the sea without a life jacket. Or if you do, look out for giant fish. So you say, that's silly. Well, I used a silly illustration to make my point. When, when you're reading a story, you want to be careful that you don't make a prescription, this is what I need to do, out of something that's merely descriptive. Now, those are the two rules. What I'm going to do, the main theme, find the main theme of the story, and then find the prescriptive elements. This is the application, okay? I'm going to put those two together for the four chapters of Jonah. Jonah chapter 1. 
Here's the theme of that chapter, and I've put it in a prescriptive statement. Number one, don't run away from your mission. Okay, don't run away from your mission. Now, you got your Bible open, everybody find Jonah chapter one. Let me read to you the first few verses. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. So the passage begins, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. By the way, this this is a common phrase when you're reading the prophets. The word of the Lord came to so-and-so. But in every other case in the Old Testament, when the word of the Lord comes to a prophet, when God gives a prophet a mission, he goes out and does it. Jonah is unique among the prophets. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, and he ran in the opposite direction. And when I say opposite direction, I mean, you couldn't get more opposite than the direction Jonah took. God says go to Nineveh. Nineveh was a great city in the ancient uh, empire of Assyria, the farther, farthest easternmost part of the then known world. That's where God sends Jonah. Jonah instead, he gets on a ship bound for Tarshish, which is in southwest Spain, the farthest westernmost part of the then known world, headed in the opposite direction. The scripture says twice in verse 3, beginning and end of the verse, he's trying to flee from the Lord. Now, you read that and you ask yourself, did did this dude really think he could do that? Did he really think he could run away from God? And and the answer is, no, not in the sense of running away from God's presence. I mean, Jonah was a smart guy. Jonah knew his Bible. He knew that God is an omnipresent God. He's everywhere. You, You can't get away from God. No doubt Jonah knew by heart David's psalm, Psalm 139, where David says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn and settle on the far side of the sea, even there, your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. In other words, you can't get away from God's presence. Can't. So I don't think Jonah was trying to escape God's presence. I think that Jonah was trying to escape God's mission. What was the mission? Well, the mission was to go to Nineveh and warn its people of God's impending judgment for their sins. Why didn't Jonah want to do that? A couple of reasons. Reason number one, he was scared of the Ninevites. And he had good reason to be terrified. If you read the introduction in your NIV study Bible this past week, which is where you're going to find the historical setting for any book of the Bible you're reading, okay, you know that, that Nineveh was a great city in Assyria. Assyria was the superpower of the day, and they were notoriously cruel as they conquered people. They, they would conquer a country, take the le- leading citizens of the country, and behead them, and then stack their heads in a pile. Or, or they would flay them, they would skin them alive, or they would uh, mount them on stakes run through them. So, so when God says, Jonah, got a mission for you, okay, God what? Go to Nineveh. I don't think so. Time for a cruise, okay? That's reason number one. Second reason why Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh, don't miss this one. Jonah had a very self-centered view of God. 
Jonah had a very self-centered view of God. See, Jonah knew that God loved him. Jonah knew that God loved his people, his fellow Jews, but everybody else could go to hell, literally. Again, if you have an NIV study Bible and you read the introduction, there's a, a portion of the introduction called theme, describing the theme of the book. And this is how it reads in the study Bible. In this story of God's loving concern for all peoples, the stubbornly reluctant Jonah represents Israel's jealousy of her favored relationship with God and her unwillingness to share the Lord's compassion with the nations. Jonah and his fellow Israelites didn't want to share God's love with other people, especially not with the Assyrians. They wanted to keep it to themselves. And here is what's so strange about Jonah's selfish disposition and the selfish disposition of his fellow Jews at the time. They, they were totally missing the reason that God had called them into relationship with himself in the first place. See, if you go back to, to the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, chapter 12, God calls Abraham, the first Jew. And do you recall the interchange, the promise God makes to Abraham? Let, let, let me read it to you. God says to Abraham, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great. Wonderful news. But listen to how God continues. And you will be a blessing. See, I'm going to bless you, and you're going to be a blessing. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. See, God was going to bless Abraham and his descendants so that they could be a blessing to others. God was going to reveal himself to Abraham and his descendants so that they could reveal God, make God known to others. God was going to offer salvation to Abraham and his descendants so that they could offer God's salvation to others. That was their mission. And Jonah didn't own the mission. Jonah didn't want to share Jonah didn't want to share the blessings of God, didn't want to share the revelation of God, didn't want to share the salvation of God. But before we write Jonah off as a selfish jerk, let me remind you that Jesus Christ has given every one of his followers a similar mission. And so the question we're faced with as we read Jonah chapter 1 is this, are we running after that mission or are we running away from it? Are we running after the mission that Christ has given us, or are we running away from it? The mission that Jesus has given us followers is spelled out in passages like Matthew 4.19, where Jesus says, come follow me, and I will send you out to fish for people. Or again, in Matthew 28, verse 19, Jesus says, go and make disciples, make followers of mine among all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And once again, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus says to his followers, you will be my witnesses. You're going to tell other people about me in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So are we, are we getting out there? Are we mixing it up? with uh, spiritually lost friends and co-workers and classmates and neighbors and the hope of pointing them to Christ? Are we signing up for Go Team trips so we could take the good news of Jesus to the world? Or are we keeping the blessings of a relationship with God to ourselves? 
And what's worse, you know, do we have a tendency to distance ourselves from a lost world by hanging out in our Christian subculture? You know, Jonah was part of the frozen chosen, right? Is that us? Us four no more? <laughs> what do I mean by hanging out in a Christian subculture? I mean, over time, we get our Christian friends, we listen to Christian radio, send our kids to Christian school, join a, a Christian business organization, tune into the news station we think is most Christian, whatever you think that is. You know, we got Christian everything. Now, now, there's nothing wrong with anything I, I just mentioned unless, unless Christian world is a bubble we're starting to live in and lost world is being ignored. Are you living in Christian world? Living in this, in, in this bubble? You know, the longer you know Christ, the, the greater the likelihood is that that will happen to you. The longer you're around Christ's community church, if you're not careful, that will happen to you. Like, like Jonah, you will retreat into your group of Christians while lost people go unreached. Now, I want to go back to the Jonah story. I want to... I want to read to you the rest of the story because I want you to see what happens to a person who runs away from their mission. All right, follow along. This is going to be a ride, so buckle up. Verse 4, then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid. Each cried out to his own God and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck. Now, let me stop just here for a moment. If you've got your own Bible, circle the expression below deck. I like it better in the original Hebrew because in the original Hebrew, it says he had gone down into the ship. Now, the reason I'm emphasizing that is because in the book of, of, of Jonah, the word down is emphasized. Okay, you, you see it right here in the verse I just read to you. He went down into the ship. Go back up to verse 3. When Jonah first decides to run from God... He headed for Tarshish, middle of the verse. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. The word down. Circle that one. If you got your own Bible, jump ahead to chapter 2. Just want you to see one verse. We're going to come back to chapter 2. This is after Jonah's been thrown overboard and is swallowed by the giant fish. He cries out to God in verse 6, To the roots of the mountains I sank, say it, down. You seeing a pattern here? Okay, as he runs away from his mission, he's going down, down, down. What direction is God? Up, up, up. Here's a lesson, friends. Run away from your mission, you get further and further from God. You neglect to tell people about Christ and the difference he's made in your life. You don't share the good news with him. And God begins to seem distant, less real to you. You work God into your conversations. You find ways to bring up Jesus and talk about him, and you'll be drawn closer to God. It'll be up, up, up. Now go back to where I left off, middle of verse 5. Jonah had gone down below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. Did it surprise you when you read this week that Jonah could sleep in the middle of a storm? I mean, didn't you think... If I'm running from God, if this had been me, I would have been nervously pacing my cabin thinking, maybe the storm is God's spanking for me running away from my mission. 
But not Jonah, he's sound asleep. Lesson here for us. Okay, sometimes we live with the mistaken notion that if we get off God's path, we'll know because we'll lose our sense of peace. People say this to me all the time. You know, people I know have left God's path. They'll look at me and say, but I've got a peace about it. <laughs> and I want to say, yes, yeah, so did Jonah. So, so do a lot of people who are disobeying God. You could be off mission and have a sense of peace. You, you could be totally tranquil about the fact that you're not reaching out to lost people today if you're a Christ follower. Not bother you at all. Didn't bother Jonah. Okay, back to the story. Verse 7, then the sailors said to each other, come, let's cast lots to find out who's responsible for this calamity. They cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, tell us, who's responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? Where's your country? From what people are you? And Jonah answered, I am a Hebrew. I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. He is so pompous, isn't he? Who are you? I worship the true God. The God who made everything. See, Jonah's got his theology right. He's he's just not on mission. He understands that God created everything, the whole world. He just doesn't care about the world God created. You following this? You could believe all the right things about God. You could go to Bible study after Bible study. You could believe that God loves everybody and not share the good news with anybody. Verse 10, this terrified them, and they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he'd already told them so. The the sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Well, pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it'll become calm. I know that it's my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they couldn't, for the sea grew even wilder than before. See, the sailors... Are, are, are doing their mission, which is to save the ship and the people on board the ship. It's Jonah who's running away from his mission. Isn't that an interesting contrast? Pagan sailors doing their mission. Jonah the believer running away from his mission. In verse 14, then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. You, Lord, have done as you pleased. And then they took Jonah, threw him overboard. The raging sea grew calm. At this the men greatly feared. They reverenced the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Again, the contrast between pagan sailors and a believing prophet is very convicting. So they start out as unbelievers. They end up, after they see God answer their prayer, they end up reverencing him, worshiping him, offering him a sacrifice. Jonah, the believer, ends up in the belly of a giant fish. Okay, the theme of chapter 1, put in the form of a prescriptive statement, is don't run away from your mission. You get it? Good. Chapter 2. Here is a summary of what you'll find in chapter 2 put in the form of a prescriptive statement. Pray for salvation ASAP. Okay, pray for salvation as soon as possible. Look at the opening verse of chapter 2. It says, from inside the fish, Jonah prayed, circle the word prayed, to the Lord his God. Now that... That verse makes it sound as if praying was the first thing that Jonah did after being swallowed by the huge fish, but it wasn't. 
As we read on in chapter 2, we discover that it took Jonah three days and three nights to to wise up before he decided to pray. Look at verse 7. Jonah says, when my life was ebbing away, when? When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you. Jonah waited until the very last possible minute to pray. Jonah waited to the 11th hour. In fact, the 11th hour and the 59th minute, and then he prayed. Don't do that. If you're listening to this sermon and you have never humbled yourself before God, but by asking him to forgive your sins, you've never put your trust in Jesus, who died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sins. If you've never surrendered to Jesus, to the best of your knowledge, you've never bent your knee installing him as king on the throne of your life, do that today. Pray for salvation, ASAP. I'd recommend you do it at our welcome center at one of our four campuses after the service today. Just go back there and say, you know, I want to make sure that I've surrendered my life to Christ. And someone will do it with you, which will make it memorable. You won't forget, I did this. Pray for salvation, ASAP. And if you're a Christ follower, you're already a Christ follower, but you find yourself in a tight spot today, before you do, listen, before you do one more thing to get yourself out of that that tight spot, try praying and asking God to save you. And as you pray, repent of any sin that may have contributed to you being in that tight spot. Ask God's forgiveness. Say, God, save me. Look at what God does for Jonah, the closing verses of chapter 2. By the way, chapter 2 is the quarter of Jonah that's poetry. Okay, this, this is poetry. If you want to know how to interpret poetry, I give you three rules for interpreting poetry in my book, Context. Verse 9, he says, But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make good. I will say, Salvation comes from the Lord. So this is his prayer. And what happens? <laughs> Verse 10, and the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. A couple of things I want to note here. That that phrase in verse 9, salvation comes from the Lord. This is the dead center of the book of Jonah. This is the midpoint of Jonah, the exact middle of the book. Salvation comes from the Lord. In chapter 1, Sailors come to discover the salvation of the Lord. In chapters 3 and 4, Ninevites come to discover the salvation of the Lord. In chapter 2, it's Jonah, the prophet, who's got to discover the salvation of the Lord for himself. The other thing I want to note, I just think it's interesting, once again, by way of contrast, that when God gives Jonah a command, he disobeys, he runs away. When God gives the giant fish a command... It immediately obeys and pukes him up. Sometimes we could be dumber than fish, right, when it comes to obeying God. Well, that's, that's chapter 2. Pray for salvation as soon as possible. Here's the main point in chapter 3. Tell others God's story, beginning with the bad news. Tell others God's story, beginning with the bad news. Chapter 3, first verse. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. You bet he did. 
By the way, it's a five to 600 mile journey. No Amtrak, okay, no Greyhound bus service. So the dude walked, which probably took him, what, a, a month or two to walk that, that long? Now, Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them from the greatest to the least put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. Drop to the closing verse of chapter 3. Verse 10, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. If your Bible's open in front of you, go back to verse 4, because this is the verse that contains the only prophecy in the entire book of Jonah, the prophet. And it's only five words long in the original Hebrew. What's the prophecy? What does Jonah declare is going to happen to the Ninevites if they don't repent of their sins? Forty more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. This is such an inspiring, lighthearted message. You talk about how to turn off an audience... Jonah is so negative. You know, why, why doesn't he try a more positive approach? Why, why, why doesn't he go around Nineveh shouting, God loves you. God wants to have a relationship with you. God wants to bless your life. He wants to give you eternal life. See, the truth of the matter is that, that tends to be the spin we put on the story when we finally get around to telling it to our friends who need Christ. So we, we try to cast it as positively as we can. God's got wonderful things in store for you if you'll just say yes to Jesus. Now, here's the downside, two downsides to that approach. First of all, when you look at somebody and you say, God loves you, the typical reaction is, they won't say this, but what they're thinking is, well, of course he does. What's not to love? Right? Now, I know there are, there are, people, there are hurting people, broken people out there, you know, there, there are people who, who come on Tuesday night to our care night and they need to be reminded that God loves them because they're struggling with an addiction or they've fallen morally. Or, but I'll tell you, for most people, we think we're pretty lovable. So when you say, God loves you, it's like it's not news. Yeah, of course he does. The, the second reason this approach tends not to work is because when you say God has something wonderful in store for you, if their lives are humming along just fine, what, what, what they'll think is, well, wait a second, I got a good job, got a wonderful family, have the newest iPhone, my football team is 3 and 0. Like, you know, God has something wonderful in store for me? Yeah, like, so what? So what? Now, here, here's the point I want to make people won't be interested in our good news until they understand the bad news. See, the, the Ninevites didn't turn to God and seek his forgiveness until Jonah helped them understand that God was going to destroy them for their sins. Romans 6, verse 23. You've heard me quote this verse often at Christ Community Church. Second half of the verse says, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You share that with someone. God's got a gift for you, eternal life through Jesus. Oh, okay. 
But, but they won't really want that gift until you share the first part of Romans 6.23 with them, which is the wages of sin is what? Death. Spiritual death. Physical death. Eternal death. So don't go that route. Don't settle for death. Receive the gift. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. People don't reach out for the gift until they understand the death, the wages of their sin is death. Now, how do you share this with a friend, with a classmate, with a coworker, with a neighbor? I found two approaches that work for me. Okay, the first is I like to use that little blue booklet. We, we took you through that little blue booklet at the end of our Storytellers series a few weeks back. Pastor Jameson took you through it. You could pick up as many copies of that little blue booklet as your heart desires after our service today and use it with friends. I find some way to, to you know, some excuse for reading that with a friend. I'll say something like, have you ever heard of God's good news? Now, this is kind of a summary of what the Bible says about the good news of God. And uh, our church kind of put it together. It's got a lot of interesting pictures. You got a few minutes? I'd love to go through it with you. Oh, sure. You get several pages in. You know what the blue booklet tells them? It tells them that their sins have separated them from a holy God, that they're facing the death sentence. See, but it's not you telling them. It's the little blue booklet, God's Word telling them. So that's one way I found that works for me. The other way that works for me is I share the bad news about me. See, instead of shaking my fist, you know, you're, you're, you're going to face death because of your sins. I say there was a time in my life when I, I was at a distance from God because my sins had separated me from him, and I spell out what I mean by my sins. And then I, I woke up, God woke me up to the realization that I could be forgiven and have life through Christ. So you tell the story on yourself. You get it? Good. Number three. Number four. Okay, the last chapter of Jonah. This is the summary statement put in a prescriptive form. Care more about lost people than personal priorities. Care more about lost people than personal priorities. So the Ninevites repent of their sins and they turn to God. So Jonah's mission is a success. So Jonah is elated, right? I mean, Jonah's jiving around Nineveh, high-fiving his new brothers and sisters in the faith. No. <laughs> Jonah is not only bummed that the cruel Assyrians have become believers, he's ticked at God. I mean, he is really, really honked off that God has not nuked these guys. He, he, he tells God, and we don't have the time to read it in chapter 4. I encourage you to read it if you didn't read it this past week. Read it for yourself. He tells God, I knew it. I knew it. I knew you're a compassionate God. I knew that if I went to Nineveh and the Ninevites truly repented, truly turned from their sins, you would forgive them. Happened just as I thought it would. Here, isn't it interesting? In chapter 2, he writes this long poem of praise to God for saving him. But in chapter 4, he reams God out for saving the Ninevites. I love that God loves me. I really don't care for him to love other people, especially not my enemies. And that's not all. After Jonah reams God out, you read in chapter 4, he goes outside the city and he builds himself this little shelter. And, and the scripture says he sits, he watches the city to see what will happen. Now, what do you think Jonah is hoping will happen? 
See, the Bible doesn't say, but you know what he's hoping will happen. He's hoping that God will change his mind yet again and nuke the Ninevites. That's what he's hoping. This is why he hasn't left the city yet. He wants to see the thing blown up. Okay, so God decides it's time to teach Jonah a lesson. Jonah is sitting out there. The shelter is not doing him much good because the sun is beating down. It could bake a brick in the Middle East. It's relentless, and so God causes a plant to grow up beside him and give him shade, and Jonah's happy. He likes the plant. Everything's good. The next morning, God sends a worm to eat the plant, and it withers. And now, oh, if you thought Jonah was upset before, he's really, really angry now. He's like a toddler throwing a tantrum. Okay, look look, look at chapter 4, verse 9. God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, and I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant, though you didn't tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left? He's speaking spiritually. All these people who don't, they don't know up from down, spiritually speaking, You want me to nuke them and all their animals? See, if I could summarize God's closing statement here, it's Jonah, you you care more about a stupid plant than you do about spiritually lost people. Is that true of us? Do we care for our spiritually lost classmates at school more than we care about the chemistry test coming up this week? Do we care more about our coworkers on the job than we do about closing the big deal we're facing this week? Do, do we, we care more about our neighbors who don't know Jesus yet than we care about the new paint color we're trying to choose for our living room redo? I turned the football game on last Sunday night to watch it with my family. And... Uh, I decided to text my nephew, Chad, who lives in Pittsburgh and is a huge Steeler fan. So I texted him, and I said, you know, let the trash texting begin. And so, so he texts back to me, and he says, Uncle Jim, I'm at the game. So game on. Okay, let's go. So back and forth during the course of the game, we're texting back and forth. As you know, the Bears won, which I was very happy for. But I realized by the end of the game, I had sent him, sent him so much garbage. <laughs> I should end on a positive note. So my, my nephew Chad loves Jesus. He's a wonderful Christ follower. He's also a brilliant musician. He plays trumpet in the Pittsburgh Symphony, which if you know anything about symphony orchestras, it's harder to get in a, a symphony orchestra than on a professional sports team. I mean, it's, the, the, the jobs are few and far between. So he's pretty good at what he does. So I, I texted him this last positive message. Hey, Chad, life is so much bigger than football, eh? We start the week tomorrow morning as ambassadors of King Jesus. What could be cooler? And he texts me back. Amen. I teach 15 private students at two different universities this semester, and these kids are lost. But we have the hope. So have a good week, Uncle Jim. Miss you. Yeah, this week you're going to be surrounded by people who need Christ. Who are lost? You're going to hide out in your Christian subculture? 
Are you going to step out? Are you going to build relationships?